everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. Today we have episode 359 for January 15th, 2024, and we've got a lot of ground to cover. This is basically all the news that I didn't really get a chance to cover through December since we had some of those pre-recorded episodes. And by the way, just a quick reminder on those episodes, those are great episodes to share with other people you think might like the podcast. So uh, those best of episodes, and perhaps maybe particular the best of uh, the private patron-only content would be great ones to share. So quick reminder, the annual listener survey is out. I do this every January and it really, really helps. Uh, I very much appreciate the feedback, uh, both positive and negative. Uh, in fact, I mean, everyone likes positive feedback, but it's good to get the positive feedback because I want to know to keep doing the things that you guys really like that I do. So anyway, you can get to that survey by going to fdsd.me. In other words, firewalls don't stop dragons, fdsd, fdsd.me slash survey 2024 survey 2024 i'm going to further incentivize you to respond to this survey uh, because i'm going to be giving 10 random respondents a free physical copy of my book and that includes a lot of international shipping i can't again i can't promise everywhere but uh you know certainly north america and europe should be no problem hopefully australia I, it's up to my publisher i have to work with them on this but uh hopefully just about anywhere I'm already starting to get some great feedback, but I need a lot more. Uh, I really want a lot more of you to respond. In fact, uh, I would particularly like to hear from people who have never responded before. So again, that's fdsd.me slash survey 2024. And if you're one of the 10 lucky random respondents that I pick out of the hat, you will get a free copy of my book. All right, so we have a lot of news to cover today. A lot of things have happened in the last month that, again, I didn't really get a chance to talk about because of the holidays. 23andMe uh, is basically blaming its victims for the data breach. I'll tell you more about that. Russian agents are hacking webcams to help guide their missile attacks on Ukraine. You may have seen some deepfake celebrity ads promoting some medical scams. I'll tell you about what's going on there. Facebook has this new thing called link history, which is really very confusing and uh, just another way for them to track you, though they're kind of already doing it anyway. Anyway, we'll talk about that. The Federal Trade Commission here in the United States has prohibited a data broker for the first time from selling location data. And that is a very interesting first that we'll talk about. Google, for some unknown reason, has changed the way they collect your location history, and that may be putting an end to something that we call geofence warrants. AirDrop, which is a technology that Apple users can use to transfer files and information uh, between each other in short distances, has apparently been cracked by China, revealing information about uh, the, the senders of information that was not supposed to be there. And, and I didn't realize how this was being used in China. And there's some, so there's some political aspects to this story that I wasn't aware of. There's a bonkers study done by some researchers at Kaspersky about a crazy chain of vulnerabilities that allowed their phones to be hacked by somebody. And they found some really interesting information that is kind of frankly disturbing about iPhones that uh, I will try to explain. Britain has already got some of Europe's toughest surveillance laws, but now they're trying to get even more surveillance data. I'm going to try to also talk about the Beeper Mini story, something that kind of came and went entirely over the month of December. And then finally, this story got a lot of press. Um, <laughs> all of us who have been trying to 
calm your fears for years and saying, no, no, your devices really aren't listening to you all the time and sending you ads based on conversations that you're having. Well, there's a company that actually is claiming to be doing exactly that. So I'll, I'll tell you uh, everything I know about that. And then finally, we'll wrap up with the tip of the week. This is going to be a long show, which will be my New Year's resolutions suggestions for you for 2024. So let's get right to it. All right, first up, this is from TechCrunch, and it's about 23andMe, which is a service that collects your DNA to help you find your ancestors uh, or do other DNA-type stuff, like you know maybe find out some congenital issues you might have uh, that could be seen in your genes. So anyway, they collect a lot of very, very personal information about people, and they were breached. And now, as this you know continues to be investigated, uh, 23andMe had done some pretty shady stuff in response to that breach. So let me, let me read this article and then we'll talk about it. Facing more than 30 lawsuits from victims of its massive data breach, 23andMe is now deflecting the blame to the victims themselves in an attempt to absolve itself from any responsibility, according to a letter sent to a group of victims seen by TechCrunch. In December, 23andMe admitted that hackers had stolen the genetic and ancestry data of 6.9 million users, nearly half of all its customers. The data breach started with hackers accessing only around 14,000 user accounts. The hackers broke into this first set of victims by brute forcing accounts with passwords that were known to be associated with the targeted customers, a technique known as credential stuffing, which we've talked about on this show many times. From these 14,000 initial victims, however, the hackers were were able to then access the personal data of another 6.9 million victims because they had opted in to 23andMe's DNA relatives feature. This optional feature allows customers to automatically share some of their data with people who are considered their relatives on the platform. In other words... By hacking into only 14,000 customer accounts, the hackers subsequently scraped personal data from another 6.9 million customers whose accounts were not directly hacked. But in a letter sent to the group of hundreds of 23andMe users who are now suing the company, 23andMe said, quote, Users negligently recycled and failed to update their passwords following these past security incidents, which are unrelated to 23andMe. Therefore, the incident was not a result of 23andMe's alleged failure to maintain reasonable security measures, unquote. 23andMe's lawyers argued that the stolen data cannot be used to inflict monetary damage against the victims, which I think is a stretch. After disclosing the breach, 23andMe reset all customer passwords and then required customers to use multi-factor authentication, which was only optional before the breach. In an attempt to preempt the inevitable class action lawsuits and mass arbitration claims, 23andMe changed its terms of service to make it more difficult for victims to band together when filing a legal claim against the company. Lawyers with experience regarding data breach victims told TechCrunch that the changes were quote-unquote cynical, self-serving, and a desperate attempt to protect itself and deter customers from going after the company. So there's there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, and I discussed some of this when I originally announced the breach, but this is really crazy. So first of all, there's a lot of mistakes here. If there were really 14,000 customer accounts that were breached via credential stuffing, that seems like something that maybe 23andMe should have, should have been able to detect and it should have set off some red flags. But if it did, they apparently didn't do anything about it. The other thing that's crazy to figure out is it only took them 14,000 customers to then reach almost 7 million customers. That's a magnification factor of about 500 to 1. 
So what that kind of implies is that those 14,000 customers had 500 relatives each and that none of those relatives overlapped. So, you know, that's not likely either. So that math just doesn't really make sense to me. I find it hard to believe that uh, out of 14,000 customers, that would allow them to get to half of 23andMe's customer base just through this relative thing. I mean, their definition of relative must be pretty weak. But then after this breach comes out, basically 23andMe says, well, hey, it's not my fault that you reused passwords, which, okay, that true, it's not their fault. But then to claim that people's DNA and family history is not something that could be used against them for monetary gain, I, I, if I was a bad guy, that would be important information if I wanted to try to spearfish somebody, for example. And then after the fact, to try to change your terms of service so that it makes it hard for people to file class action lawsuits against you when you know you've got a bunch of them coming, man. So anyway, the bottom line to all of this is, is something I've been saying for years now, certainly as part of my uh, best and worst gift guides for the year, these DNA services, I understand that they're interesting They're I've been tempted to use them myself, but there's really nothing more personal about you than your DNA. I mean, your DNA is literally you. And these companies just are not doing enough to protect this very sensitive data. So we'll see where this lawsuit goes, but if they screwed up, which it looks like they did, you know, I hope that there's payment and restitution for this. And maybe yet one more reason why we should be having privacy and security regulations in this country that, <laughs> that have minimum standards for protecting and collecting data like this. Okay, moving on. This is from Dark Reading, and this is about how Russian agents were hacking into public webcams to help their guided missile attacks on Ukraine. The Security Service of Ukraine, the SSU, has asked owners and operators of webcams in the country to stop broadcasts from their devices over concerns about Russia's intelligence services using the feeds to conduct military reconnaissance against strategic targets. The SSU's move follows a recent incident where Russian agents hacked into two residential webcams in Kyiv to gather information on the city's air defense systems prior to launching a missile attack on the Ukrainian capital. In a statement, the SSU describes one of the webcams as being located on top of a Kyiv apartment building, apparently near a critical infrastructure facility, and being used by the Condo Association to monitor the surrounding area. Russian intelligence services hacked into the camera, changed its viewing angle, and streamed its live feed to YouTube, from which they monitored everything within the camera's range. The second camera, too, was located at a residential complex in Kyiv, this one for monitoring the building's parking facility. Russian agents took control of the webcam the same way they did with the first and used it to gather information on an adjacent critical infrastructure facility. So far, this has meant blocking the operation of some 10,000 IP cameras in Ukraine that Russia could have used to inform its missile attacks on the country. In its statement, the state security agency reminded citizens and operators of street webcams in the country about their obligation to not broadcast video and images that Russia could use for targeted attacks. Russia's hacking of IP cameras and the country's use of them in carrying out air attacks against Ukraine highlights the risks associated with webcams and insecure IoT devices in general. In the Ukraine-Russia and Israel-Hamas conflicts, both sides have been hacking into IP cameras and other IoT systems to gain intelligence, promote propaganda, and enable lateral movement into other systems. And I'll explain that in a second. The apparent ease with which Russian agents managed to compromise the IP cameras in Kyiv highlights the lack of robust security features in many widely deployed IoT products. These include features such as strong authentication mechanisms, regular security updates, and the ability to monitor and detect suspicious activities. And I'll also add that many of them have default passwords 
that are never changed. Concerns over IoT security prompted the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, to propose a new encryption standard in February 2023 for connected devices. And I think we covered that on the show here when that came out. NIST has described the standard as designed for even the most lightweight IoT devices, such as IP cameras, medical devices, and stress detectors on roads and bridges. However, security experts expect it will be some time yet before IoT vendors begin implementing the new standard in any meaningful way, given how far behind most most of them are in implementing even basic security protections. So real quick, it was talking about lateral movement. And my classic story for that is the, uh, well, there's two of them that come to mind. First of all, it was hacking the target databases and customer database systems by going through uh, an HVAC system uh, in a target store that was connected to the internet. But the one that always gets me is the, is the casino that was hacked because there was a smart thermometer in a aquarium inside the casino that was connected to the internet and was on the same internet as some of the more sensitive systems. And as you might imagine, the security built into a smart thermostat for a fish aquarium might not be that strong. But once you hack into that, you're on the same network as all the juicy stuff, and that would be a lateral movement. So yeah, we talk on this show a lot about how IoT security is really bad and how these IoT devices can then be used as beachheads to attack other things on your home network or on the networks of corporations or governments or, or, or wherever these other you know low security devices are, are, are attached. We're also seeing this now with public infrastructure. We've seen plenty of cases where hacks have been made or attempted on uh, you know water treatment facilities and power plants and, and nuclear facilities. But now there's this new thing that maybe you're not thinking about. I mean, if you were at war with somebody, think of how you would use these IoT devices to your advantage. And basically what's happening here is that uh, Russia hacked into these public webcams. In other words, uh, webcams that are on the broader Internet hacked into these cameras. And, and because the cameras were actually able to be turned and moved, they found cameras near the targets they wanted to hit with their missiles turned the cameras on them and had a live view of their target as they were sending in the missiles. And if it came a little bit to the left, they can just say, okay, <laughs> tweak it a little bit, try again. We have cameras everywhere, uh, not just here in the US, but all over the planet because they're, they're popular with consumers, with businesses, with governments. And the surveillance opportunities available to somebody who could hack into those cameras are just crazy. And then layer on top of that, things like using Clearview AI to find the, the faces that you find in those images or license plate readers to figure out the cars and who owns those cars that might be going past those cameras. It's one thing to be thinking about that information being collated and, and bundled and sold to sell advertisements, but the possibilities for espionage, or in this case, you know, deadly accuracy in wartime missile strikes. I mean, these are things we need to be thinking about. All right, let's move on. Next up, this is from 404 Media, and I will be interviewing uh, two of the reporters from 404 here shortly. And this is about deep fake celebrity ads promoting some Medicare scams. Shoddy AI clones of celebrities, including Joe Rogan, Taylor Swift, Steve Harvey, Ice Cube, Andrew Tate, Oprah, and The Rock, are hawking Medicare and Medicaid scams to millions of people on YouTube with seemingly little intervention from Google. 
Ads connected to the scam have been viewed more than 195 million times on YouTube, according to a playlist of more than 1,600 videos compiled by a tipster who shared them with 404 Media. YouTube has taken down few, if any, of the ads, which have mostly been uploaded over the course of the last three months and have been widely discussed by outraged YouTubers and YouTube users, both on the platform and off of it. And here's a quote from one of these things. I actually watched it. Um, it's, it's not that great, but it's might be close enough to fool some people. Anyway, th- here's a quote from one of these ads. It says, quote, hi, guys, it's Taylor Swift. Remember those stimulus checks? Well, there's a new thing going viral. The state is giving away $6,400 holiday packages to cover all your bills. It's a holiday boost due to inflation, and you won't need to pay it back. You'll have so much leftover cash for rent, gas, and groceries, you'll be approved for your holiday stimulus as long as you don't have Medicaid or Medicare. Just visit the website, answer two quick questions, and a representative will handle the rest. Then you'll get your stimulus package in like two or three days. I left the link below so you can claim yours too, unquote. That ad and another with Swift have more than 300,000 views each. There are at least four clones of Joe Rogan, three of Andrew Tate, three of Oprah and The Rock, one of Haley Bieber, and one of the hosts of the Call Her Daddy podcast, Alex Cooper. In this next paragraph, all these things are links to these videos. Uh, So if you really want to see one of these, go to the show notes and you can click on these links here. Here's a Steve Harvey video with 18 million views and another with 5.5 million views. Here's the Rock and Oprah with 4.6 million views and another with 2.9 million views. Here's a Joe Rogan video with 2.1 million views and an Andrew Tate video with 1.3 million views. Many of the ads rely on AI voice cloning paired with decontextualized video of the celebrity, while others play a short, real clip of a celebrity, then pivot to the scam with a different actor or voice clone after grabbing a user's attention. Other ads don't have celebrities in them at all, but direct to the same scam websites and are being posted by the same advertiser. The ads direct to websites offering some version of relief direct aid. This is a type of scam that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has warned about. And this is a quote from uh, HHS, a quote, Scammers steal money from the public through fake HHS websites and social media schemes by offering fake HHS grants, unquote. The ads, their prevalence, and the fact that they are still on YouTube despite widespread outrage from YouTube users and some of the impersonated celebrities themselves show that AI-generated scams and content is either overwhelming YouTube or that Google simply is not trying to protect its users from these scams. YouTube is struggling with AI-generated true crime simulations, while celebrity AI clones are also hawking products on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Cardi B and Sexy Red have both tweeted that they may sue over the fakes, and the New York Times pointed out that Tom Hanks, Mr. Beast, Oprah, Gail King, and country musician Lainey Wilson have all spoken out about having their likenesses stolen by AI for sketchy or scam ads. While we continue to be hit over the head with the idea that generative AI as currently constructed is going to revolutionize everything and make us more efficient workers, the thing generative AI is currently best at is creating huge amounts of low-quality BS and spamming every possible platform with it in a way that confuses the masses, impersonates people, overwhelms the largest and supposedly most sophisticated platforms we have, and supercharges existing scams. Meanwhile, in failing to moderate AI scam ads, Google and other platforms are putting their users at risk while collecting money to promote sketchy or illegal activity. So just to be clear, what what appears to be going on here is that, uh, you know, Google is an ad company that happens to make lots of products that we use like Google Chrome, YouTube, Waze, 
uh, Android and many other things. And because they're an ad company, they sell ads and they sell ad space and they do it through a lot of automatic tools. And so bad guys can buy ads just like good guys can buy ads. And the bad guys are creating these scam ads and buying ad time on Google. And so these ads are just popping up wherever Google places ads. And some of them are scams and Google is not doing a good job at it. But in the meantime, they're making money off these people, you know, putting up scam ads. So here's your PSA. Don't trust everything you see. Uh, AI stuff is getting a lot better. By the way, these ones that I've seen are really actually pretty bad. Like you can tell that, you know, even though their mouth is moving, they are not saying the words that are, are coming out of the speakers. But the voice sounds pretty convincing. It mostly sounds like the people. I mean, this AI, you know, voice cloning tool that they're using is pretty good. And these things are just going to get better. It, it will definitely, definitely get to the point. And I would say within the next year or two, depending on how much time and money these bad guys have, have to throw at these things, where you will not be able to tell the difference. It will look like and sound like Taylor Swift. You will watch the video and you would swear that that is actually them saying it and their mouth is moving to the words that you are hearing. The other way that this stuff is being used, of course, is, you know, all those Nigerian prince phishing schemes that you would get in your email inbox that have poor grammar or poor punctuation or obvious other mistakes. Those are all going by the wayside. The ones that you're going to be getting uh, in the future are going to have perfect English. They're going to be very compelling and you'll have a much, much harder time identifying them as scams. So be on your toes, everybody. It's just, just going to get worse. All right, here's another story from Gizmodo, and this is about Facebook's new link history feature, and it covers a lot of other interesting aspects, so it's a little longer than some of the other ones I'm going to talk about, but it covers a lot of really good stuff. So Facebook recently rolled out a new link history setting that creates a special repository of all the links you click on in the Facebook mobile app. You can opt out if you're proactive, but the company is pushing link history on users and the data is used for targeting ads. As lawmakers introduce tech regulations and Apple and Google beef up privacy restrictions, Meta is doubling down and searching for new ways to preserve its data harvesting empire. The company pitches Link History as a useful tool com for consumers with your browsing activity saved in one place, rather than another way to keep tabs on your behavior. With the new setting, you'll, quote, never lose a link again, unquote. Facebook says in a pop-up encouraging users to consent to the new tracking method. The company goes on to mention that, quote, when you allow link history, we may use your information to improve your ads across meta technologies, unquote. The app keeps the toggle switched on in the pop-up, steering users towards accepting link history unless they take the time to look carefully. Facebook promises to delete the link history it's created for you within 90 days if you turn the setting off. According to a Facebook help page, link history isn't available everywhere. The company says it's rolling out globally over time. This is a privacy improvement in some ways, but the setting raises more questions than it answers. Meta has always kept track of the links you click on, and this is the first time users have had any visibility or control over this corner of the company's internet spying apparatus. In other words, Meta is just asking users for permission for a category of tracking that it's been using for over a decade. Beyond that, there are a number of ways this setting might give users an illusion of privacy that Meta isn't offering. When you click on a link in the Facebook or Instagram apps, the website loads in a special browser built into the app. And I'm going to come back to this point in particular in a minute. 
rather than your phone's default browser. In 2022, privacy researcher Felix Krauss found that Meta injects special keylogging JavaScript onto the website you're visiting that allows the company to monitor everything you type and tap on, including passwords. Other apps, including TikTok, do the same thing. Link history also creates a confusing new regime that establishes privacy settings that don't apply if you access Facebook outside the Facebook app. If you log into Facebook on a computer or a mobile browser instead, Link History doesn't protect you. In fact, you can't see the Link History page at all if you're looking at Facebook on your laptop. Adding to the confusion, Meta tracks things you're doing on other parts of the internet in a similar but unrelated way. To participate in Meta's advertising networks, millions of companies add a tracking tool called the Meta Pixel to their websites. This sends Meta details about your activity when you're not using Meta's products whatsoever, even if you don't have an account on Facebook or Instagram. A 2022 investigation by The Markup found that at least 30% of popular websites use the Meta Pixel. Facebook and Instagram users have a small amount of control over some of the ways the data is used through a setting called Off Facebook Activity, as well as a confusingly named Clear History tool that doesn't actually clear anything. That means Facebook now has two entirely separate places where it stores details about the websites you visit, along with settings to control that data that are hard to find and easy to misinterpret. The new link history tool comes as other companies go in the exact opposite direction. Apple introduced a powerful but sometimes ineffective privacy control for iPhones called App Tracking Transparency in 2020, which dealt a serious blow to Meta's data business. Google is killing cookies in the Chrome browser with an initial test phase in the next few days that will turn off cookies for about 30 million Chrome users. At the same time, lawmakers are finally stepping in to enact serious privacy protections on the broader internet. In the EU, regulators issued a fine that will prevent Meta from forcing users to consent to data harvesting. All right, and this, this article goes on, but I want to come back to a couple things here. First of all, yeah, Meta's been collecting this data all along anyway. I'm not really sure what this whole length history thing is. Maybe it's a legal thing to get around some consent issues in the EU, you know, by basically formally trying to trick its users through dark patterns into saying they have consented to this sort of tracking. But I definitely want to talk about this thing that because I don't think a lot of people understand this. So on your mobile phones, you can set your default web browsers, which what the way that's supposed to work is the way it works on your computer is when I click on a link on some other app or in a document or something like that, and I need to go to the web. So, well, let me launch your web browser with that link. Which web browser do you want me to use? And at some point, either by default or through an affirmative setting, you said, I want to use this browser for as my default browser. Whenever you click a link, whenever you take me to the internet with HTTP, whatever, this is the application I want you to run. And you can do that on your computer and you can do that on your phone. But it works a little differently on your phone. And this is a key thing to understand. And I, I don't know why Apple in particular allows this to even happen. But when you click on a link, let's say in an app, and that takes you to something on the web. And in this case, we're talking about the Facebook app. It does not launch your default web browser. Like in my case, it's Firefox. So if I was in the Facebook Messenger app or a, a, the Facebook app on my iPhone and I click a link uh, in somebody's post or in some ad or something like that on the Facebook app, it will bring up a web browser, but it is not bringing up Firefox, which is my chosen default web browser for my iPhone. It is bringing up a built-in web browser that came with the app. And you can see where this is going. <laughs> they want to control that web browser badly. For instance, they don't want you to be able to have ad blocking plugins. They don't want you to, to be able to prevent 
uh, ads from being shown or tracking to to occur, which you might be able to do if it was using the browser that you chose. And that's probably the reason you chose that browser. Certainly, if you're a listener to this podcast, you might be wanting a browser that would protect your privacy. And so that when I click a link, darn it, I want, <laughs> I want to use the browser I chose because that browser has some privacy protections. No, that doesn't work that way on mobile phones. Most of these apps, certainly the apps that want to track you, build in their own web browser. And that is the web browser that is used whenever you click on links within that app or in Meta's case, in any related app. I'm sure that Instagram and Facebook, who are both owned by Meta, uh, probably use the same internal built-in web browser. So this is just, in my mind, a complete travesty. I I don't know why this is allowed. Uh, Apple certainly, I would think, would be in a position to require that any links that are going to open a web browser uh, be able to be routed to your chosen default web browser and not uh, a web browser that's built into the app. Like, for example, Apple actually requires all web browsers on iOS, currently anyway, uh, to use their WebKit uh, browser engine. And maybe that is enough. Maybe, maybe because it does that, maybe that allows, you know, Apple to have some control. But what this article is basically saying is because Facebook controls the web browser. They actually control the web pages that are rendered as well. And so they can take whatever web page you asked for, whether it's one of theirs or not, and actually insert JavaScript into that web page before loading it in the web browser so that they can track you. Now, one more quick comment here. And this, this article talks about the meta pixel used to be the Facebook pixel, uh, Google like buttons. And, uh, we're like this as well. These are these little widgets that, that, that go on the web page that allow you to give a thumbs up to something you like. Or, or whatever. Those little bits of JavaScript were also tracking you. And if you use something like uBlock Origin, all those things are blocked in the track, or at least the tracking for those things are blocked. So that's why you want, that's why you want to be able to choose your web browser so that you can get those kind of features. And that is exactly why they don't want to let you do it. All right, next up, this is a blog or press release or whatever from the Federal Trade Commission here in the U.S., the FTC, uh, and it's really welcoming news. So let me just briefly read this and we'll talk about it. Data broker Xmode Social and its successor, OutLogic, will be prohibited from sharing or selling any sensitive location data to settle Federal Trade Commission allegations that the company sold precise location data that could be used to track people's visits to sensitive locations such as medical and reproductive health clinics, places of religious worship, and domestic abuse shelters. In its first settlement with the data broker concerning the collection and sale of sensitive location information, the FTC also charged that Virginia-based Xmode Social and Outlogic LLC, the successor firm to which Xmode transferred most of its operations in 2021, failed to put in place reasonable and appropriate safeguards on the use of such information by third parties. Today's action underscores the FTC's strong commitment to retaining the collection, sale, and disclosure of consumers' sensitive location data. And here's a quote from the FTC chair, Lena Khan. Uh, Quote, geolocation data can reveal not just where a person lives and whom they spend time with, but also, for example, which medical treatments they seek and where they worship. The FTC's action against X-Mode makes clear that businesses do not have free license to market and sell Americans' sensitive location data. By securing a first-ever ban on the use and sale of sensitive location data, the FTC is continuing its critical work to protect Americans from intrusive data brokers and unchecked corporate surveillance, unquote. 
The raw location data that Xmode and uh, Outlogic has sold is associated with mobile advertising IDs, which are unique identifiers associated with each mobile device. This raw location data is not anonymized and is capable of matching an individual's consumer mobile device with locations they visited. In fact, some companies offer services that help companies match such data to individual consumers. Xmode Outlogic sells and licenses precise location data that it collects from third-party apps that incorporate its software development kit, or SDK, into their apps from its own mobile apps and by purchasing location data from other data brokers and aggregators. The company sells consumer location data to hundreds of clients in industries ranging from real estate to finance, as well as private government contractors for their own purposes, such as advertising or brand analytics. According to the FTC's complaint, until May 2023, the company did not have any policies in place to remove sensitive locations from the raw location data it sold. The FTC says Xmode or Outlogic did not implement reasonable or appropriate safeguards against downstream use of the precise location data it sells, putting customers' sensitive personal information at risk. We still do not have decent privacy legislation at the federal level, at least here in the United States. So this is what we are reduced to doing to try to get a handle on some of these things. The Federal Trade Commission has honestly limited scope and power here. They're doing what they can. Basically, they, this stuff kind of falls under false advertising or you know some other kind of angle shots really uh, at trying to be able to curb these sorts of activities. I'm not familiar with this process enough to know if this is the final say on this matter or whether this can be appealed. But it, it, you know, it's it's a good first step. Obviously, I like to see these kind of things done. But to really get a handle on this stuff, we absolutely need privacy regulations in this country. All right, next up, here's an announcement from the EFF that is welcome news, even if it is inexplicable. Google announced this week that it will be making several important changes to the way it handles users' location history data. These changes would appear to make it much more difficult, if not impossible, for Google to provide mass location data in response to a geofence warrant, a change we've been asking Google to implement for years. Geofence warrants require a provider, almost always Google, to search its entire reserve of user location data to identify all users or devices located within a geographic area during a time period specified by law enforcement. These warrants violate the Fourth Amendment because they are not targeted to a particular individual or device, like a typical warrant for digital communications. The only evidence supporting a geofence warrant is that a crime occurred in a particular area and the perpetrator likely carried a cell phone that shared location data with Google. For this reason, they inevitably sweep up potentially hundreds of people that have no connection to the crime under investigation and could turn each of these people into a suspect. Geofence warrants are possible because Google collects and stores specific user location data, which Google calls location history data, altogether in a massive database called Sensor Vault. Google reported several years ago that geofence warrants make up 25% of all warrants it receives each year. Google's announcement outlined three changes to how it will treat location history data. First, going forward, this data will be stored by default on a user's device instead of with Google in the cloud. Second, it will be set by default to delete after three months. Currently, Google stores the data for at least 18 months. And finally, if users choose to back up their data to the cloud, Google will, quote, automatically encrypt your backed up data so no one can read it, including Google, unquote. 
All of this is fantastic news for users, and we are cautiously optimistic that this will effectively mean the end of geofence warrants. These warrants are dangerous. They threaten privacy and liberty because they not only provide police with sensitive data on individuals that could turn innocent people into suspects. Further, they have been used during political protests and threaten free speech and our ability to speak anonymously without fear of government repercussions. For these reasons, EFF has repeatedly challenged geofence warrants in criminal cases and worked with other groups, including tech companies, to push for legislative bans on their use. However, we are not yet prepared to declare total victory. Google's collection of user location data isn't limited to just the location history data searched in response to geofence warrants. Google collects additional location information as well. It remains to be seen whether law enforcement will find a way to access these other stores of location data on a mass basis in the future. Also, none of Google's changes will prevent law enforcement from issuing targeted warrants for individual users' location data outside of location history if police have probable cause to support such a search, which I would argue is the way it should work. That's, that's fine. But for now, at least, we'll take this as a win. It's very welcome news for technology users as we usher in the end of 2023. So that's all good news as far as I'm concerned. I'm, I don't know why Google is doing it. You know, perhaps they're finally realizing that they don't want to be part of this process and they want to kind of engineer themselves out of the problem by making it inaccessible to themselves like Apple generally tries to do. I, I'd be very curious to know what was behind this move and we, we may never know. But couple this with the previous story, there are still a lot of data brokers out there that are collecting location information and there are other ways to get it besides going through Google. And so now my guess is is that now these data brokers that are collecting location data will start getting these geofence warrants. Again, we need privacy legislation. That is what stops this. All right, next up, this is from 9to5Mac, uh, and it's about uh, AirDrop. And uh, this is a technology that we don't talk a lot about, and so I think it's good to talk about it here. And uh, this is actually some troubling information about uh, Apple's technology for transferring data in short distances between mobile devices. Okay. In a significant breach of Apple's privacy measures, a new report says that AirDrop was cracked by the Chinese government to reveal the phone number and email address of senders. The anonymity of AirDrop was one of the reasons it has commonly been used by activists to share information about protests and other information censored by the government. AirDrop is a proprietary encrypted communications tool developed by Apple and is only intended to share the name of your phone, which you can set to anything you like. Your Apple ID should not be disclosed, nor the contact information associated with it, namely your phone number and email address. This security has made it a safe way for anti-government activists to distribute information censored on the internet. It was, for example, widely used in Hong Kong to pass on the dates, times, and locations of upcoming protests. So while the so-called Great Firewall of China blocks keywords, locations, and dates associated with protests when posted on the internet, AirDrop is a short-range, direct device-to-device -device protocol, meaning there's no way for the government to block it. China has long been concerned about the ability of AirDrop to circumvent its censorship and clearly expressed its concern to Apple, asking it to take action to prevent this type of use. Apple responded by introducing a new timeout. To receive documents from strangers via AirDrop, you need to set your iPhone to receive messages from quote-unquote everyone instead of quote-unquote contacts only. Protesters would keep this setting enabled at all times to facilitate public sharing. Apple introduced a 10-minute timeout for the everyone setting. At the end of that time, it would revert to contacts only. That made it almost impossible to use AirDrop in this way as everyone would have to manually re-enable it every 10 minutes. 
China planned to go further, introducing a new law to make it illegal to distribute anti-government materials in this way. The law would also force Apple to set iPhone names to the real name of the owner. But it appears that the state has found a better solution. Bloomberg reports that a state-backed institute has now cracked airdrop encryption, revealing the identities of those sending files. And this is a quote from Bloomberg. The Beijing Institute developed the technique to crack an iPhone's encrypted device log to identify the numbers and emails of senders who share airdrop content, the city's judicial bureau said in an online post. Police have identified multiple suspects via that method, the agency said, without disclosing if anyone was arrested. And this is a quote from that bureau, quote, it improves the efficiency and accuracy of case solving and prevents the spread of inappropriate remarks as well as potential bad influences, unquote. And back to the nine to five article, there's no indication that the content encryption has been breached, but the state authorities would, of course, be able to accept public airdrop broadcasts to receive the content and then match it to the sender. Usually, when one of Apple's security measures is breached, the company would issue an update to patch it. We'd hope this will happen here, but the Chinese government is likely to apply pressure on the iPhone maker to leave the exploit unpatched, at least on Chinese devices. So this is interesting to me because, (laughs) you know, being in America, I hadn't really thought about this particular use for AirDrop, though it makes a lot of sense to me. When I first heard that Apple was changing the default uh, setting for AirDrop from everyone to contacts only, and that when you could uh, enable everyone, that that would only last for 10 minutes and then it would go back to contacts only. I thought this was in response to people sending dick pics. Uh, This was happening on airplanes, for example. You get on an airplane and somebody on the airline uh, who wants to share his genitals with everybody else on the plane could look to see whose airdrop was open and then just start airdropping pictures of himself to everybody. So contacts only made a lot of sense. And to me, it makes sense that you don't want to be that this, it's often called promiscuous mode uh, in networking when you're basically open to all traffic uh, with no restrictions. And you don't really want to do that for very long. So I thought it was actually a great security thing to make that only be enableable for like a 10 minute window. It's something you should not be leaving on all the time. But I wasn't really thinking of it in terms of this, where in a a very repressive regime where it's hard to get information on the internet, you could at least disseminate some of this, this information locally, wirelessly, like, you know, going through, you know, public places and train stations and, and whatever to make this stuff available to disseminate the information that way in a way that's basically impossible to stop. So I, I didn't actually realize or make the connection that it was perhaps China behind the drive for that change in how this technology worked. But what this article is basically telling us is that for this technology to work, for you to be able to only be available to your contacts, then you kind of have to know who's trying to send you something, right? So that you know if they're in your contacts or not. So there has to be some mechanism in this airdrop technology to broadcast not only, hey, someone wants to send you something, but here is that, here's the contact details of that someone. So you can look them up in your contacts or your phone can look them up in your contacts and say, oh, that person is allowed. So bring it on. So what it sounds like is that China has figured out a way to reverse engineer that somehow or break into the the logs on the device to figure out who is sending that material. So they could, for example, go on a subway and open up their device to uh, receive from anyone. And when somebody sends them that information about a protest, they can now, with this crack that they've figured out, see who is sending that information. 
and then uh, presumably track that person down and arrest them or whatever. So anyway, not good. And I, I seriously hope Apple comes up with a fix for this. Now, this next story is, is, a, is a doozy, and I am not going to be able to do it justice. Uh, this program is already going to run long, and this would take a whole podcast. In fact, it did take a whole podcast. One of the ones I listen to on a religious basis is called Security Now uh, from the Twit Network with Steve Gibson. Steve did basically an entire episode on this, and I've got a link in the show notes that will jump you right to the point where he starts talking about it uh, in that episode if you want, if you really want all the technical details. And it's just a fascinating story. Um, if you're into cybersecurity at all, check this one out because it's it's got some real twists and turns. But I'm going to give you the short version of what happened and then several of my hot takes on, on on what the impacts of this are. So Bruce Schneier has a blog on this, and he is usually very, very terse. So I'm going to read his take on this, which is really just a quote of another article. And then I'm going to kind of rattle off my thoughts. Kaspersky researchers are detailing at a an attack that over four years backdoored dozens, if not thousands of iPhones, many of which belong to employees of Moscow-based security firm Kaspersky. It's a zero-click exploit that makes use of four iPhone zero-day exploits. And here's a quote from the article he's quoting. The most intriguing new detail is the targeting of the heretofore unknown hardware feature, which proved to be pivotal to the Operation Triangulation campaign. A zero day in the feature allowed the attackers to bypass advanced hardware-based memory protections designed to safeguard device system integrity even after an attacker gained the ability to tamper with memory of the underlying kernel. And the kernel is like the very most important central part of the operating system. On most other platforms, once attackers successfully exploit a kernel vulnerability, they have full control of the compromised systems. On Apple devices equipped with these protections, such attackers are still unable to perform key post-exploitation techniques, such as injecting malicious code into other processes or modifying kernel code or sensitive kernel data. This powerful protection was bypassed by exploiting a vulnerability in a secret function. And then Bruce wraps it up by saying... This is nation-state stuff, absolutely crazy in its sophistication. Kaspersky discovered it, so there's no speculation as to the attacker. And actually, I'm, I'm not even sure what he means by that last statement. I, I think there is speculation on who the attacker is. But okay, so let me see if I can summarize this in my own way, because it is a really, really long story uh, that, that it's kind of hard to summarize. But First of all, this is an extremely, extremely sophisticated attack. It uses four separate zero days. Zero days are attacks that supposedly the manufacturer of the devices don't know about yet. So they have zero days to respond. They are playing catch up. It's already being exploited. It's out in the wild. And now they've got to scramble to, to provide a fix. And some of these zero days were, were just straight up bugs, vulnerabilities. Uh, one was an iMessage vulnerability where you could send an iMessage to someone and which allowed it to do uh, uh, some hacking on the device. And then, then two more exploits. Uh, basically, there was a chaining together of multiple vulnerabilities to get to the point where they could do this final vulnerability exploitation. But here's the thing, this final zero day, I don't think is really a zero day because what it really looks like, and again, I encourage you, if you want the technical details, to, to go listen to Steve Gibson's um, talk about this, because it's just crazy. Or you could look at this article uh, and get the full details there, too, if you just want to read it. Basically, it really appears that there is a designed in, an engineered backdoor 
into Apple's modern iPhones that was done very, very well, like chef's kiss. Like this is if what it really looks like is if Apple was forced at gunpoint to provide a backdoor to their iPhones. And they said, look, if you're going to make us do it, we're going to do it our way. And we're going to make it super, super secret and secure. This is what they would have come up with. And I really think based on what this thing has shown, I, I can't imagine that Apple did not know about this. In fact, I almost can't imagine that Apple didn't engineer it themselves, which means that Apple had put a backdoor in its iPhones. This company that has done so much for security and privacy appears to have deliberately put in a mechanism in their devices that would allow them under very certain circumstances and under high control to basically compromise any iPhone. Now, I don't know if we're ever going to know what really happened here. It's possible. I don't think likely, but it's possible that this is a supply chain attack. Maybe this was, this is hardware level stuff. So this is something like in the ARM processor. It is possible that this is from some third party supplier and Apple didn't notice it, but I, I, I seriously doubt it. It just, that just doesn't seem to be the likely case here. I think there's basically two possible explanations for this. And again, we may never know the truth. It's real easy to start getting conspiratorial. Um, but I would say it's one of two things. Either the NSA issued a national security letter to Apple that forced them to do this. And I'm not even sure, honestly, if they could legally force them to do this. Or after some of the things that have happened, like the San Bernardino shooting and some of the other pressure from law enforcement, uh, if the higher echelons of Apple didn't finally say, you know what, you know, we better have an answer for that nuclear time bomb scenario where there is some information on somebody's recovered iPhone that they believe could save millions of people. And we have to have that. And so maybe just maybe Apple said we need an answer for that scenario. But here's the upshot. And I've said this over and over, and I'm not the first person to say this, by the way, you cannot create a backdoor that only good guys can go through. Now they did an amazing job engineering this, and they did an amazing job of, of doing it in such a way that would be basically impossible to detect unless you are in possession of an iPhone that was attacked in this way or is being attacked in this way. And in this case, you happen to be a very top-notch security firm like Kaspersky. Enough of their phones were attacked by this exploit that they were able to then watch how it did what it did. And over the course of a year, it took them a year to figure out how this worked. Over the course of a year to identify these four zero-day exploits that were used, the amazing and complicated and exotic way in which this attack worked and then to finally discover this very, very well hidden back door on iPhones that allowed them the final step to take over the device. Now, Apple apparently turned this off in iOS version 16.6, which was, I think, last year. But it's still there in the hardware. Apple could re-enable this at any time or something else like this. In fact, it looks like they have actually altered this secret backdoor technology over the years, which kind of makes it seem like it's something that Apple had to know about. But now that we know it's there, now that this has been exposed, 
until and if Apple takes it out of the hardware, that means that they could potentially exploit this again in the future. And governments now know that the NSA, the Chinese government, the Russian government, any government that wants to spy on its citizens or, or get into these previously thought to be very, very secure communications devices now know that it's possible. And you know, they're going to be calling up Tim Cook and saying, you know what? Now that we know about this, we need to, we need to use this. It's a very special situation. It's a matter of national security. What's Apple going to do? I don't know. And, and honestly, we'll probably never know. I hope we do learn more about this. It's pretty scary. Uh, I mean, you and I, as regular everyday people don't have to worry about this, but it's still quite disturbing. And I hope at some point, somehow we get to the bottom of, of what really happened here. All right, next up, this is from Politico in Europe, uh, and it's about some new UK surveillance laws. The UK already has some of the most far-reaching surveillance laws in the democratic world. Now it's rushing to beef them up even further, and tech firms are spooked. Britain's government wants to build on its landmark Investigatory Powers Act, a controversial piece of legislation dubbed the Snoopers Charter by critics when introduced it back in 2016. That law, introduced in the wake of whistleblower Edward Snowden's revelation of mass state surveillance, attempted to introduce more accountability into the UK intelligence agency's sprawling snooping regime by formalizing wide-ranging powers to intercept emails, texts, web history, and more. Now new legislation is triggering a fresh outcry among both industry execs and privacy campaigners who say it could hobble efforts to protect user privacy. Industry body Tech UK has written to Home Secretary James Cleverly airing its complaints. The group's letter warns that the Investigatory Powers Amendment Bill threatens technological innovation, undermines the sovereignty of other nations, and could unleash dire consequences if it sets off domino, a domino effect overseas. Tech companies are most concerned by a change that would allow the Home Office to issue notices preventing them from making technical updates that might impede information sharing with UK intelligence agencies. Tech UK argues that, combined with pre-existing powers, the changes would, quote, grant a de facto power to indefinitely veto companies from making changes to their products and services offered in the UK, unquote. And this is a quote from Meredith Whitaker, who's the president of uh, Signal. Quote, using this power, the government could prevent the implementation of new end-to-end encryption or stop developers from patching vulnerabilities in code that the government or their partners would like to exploit, unquote. Despite the protestations of industry and campaigners, the British government is whisking the bill through Parliament at breakneck speed, risking the ire of lawmakers. Ministers have so far blocked efforts to refine the bill in the House of Lords, the UK's upper chamber. But there are more opportunities to contest the legislation coming, and industry is already making appeals to MPs in the hopes of pairing it back in the House of Commons. The backdrop to the row is, is the fraught debate on encryption that unfolded during the passage of the earlier Online Safety Act, which companies and campaigners argued could compel companies to break encryption in the name of online safety. The bill ultimately said that the government can call for the implementation of this technology when it's quote-unquote technically feasible and simultaneously preserves privacy. Apple, WhatsApp, and Signal have threatened to pull their services from the UK if asked to undermine encryption under UK laws. Since the Online Safety Act passed in November, Meta announced that it had begun its rollout of end-to-end encryption on its messenger service. In response, Cleverly issued a statement saying he was quote-unquote disappointed that the company had gone ahead with the move despite repeated government warnings that it would make identifying child abusers on the platform more difficult. Critics see a pincer movement. And this is another quote from Whitaker, quote, 
Taken together, it appears that the Online Safety Bills Clause 122 is intended to undermine existing encryption, while the updates to the IPA are intended to block further rollouts of encryption, unquote. So I have not seen a resolution to this. This article came out January 3rd. The, the latest update I could find on this was still uh, several days ago, and uh, I didn't see that this had moved forward. But uh, I'll be keeping an eye on it, and I will let you know if there's any further developments. All right, just a couple more stories here, and I know we're, we're running long today, but we have a lot to catch up on. So this next one is another doozy, uh, and it's kind of hard to summarize, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try here. Uh, and this article from Mac Rumors kind of starts in the later parts of the story, so it kind of assumes you know some of these things, but then kind of goes and explains some of the earlier things. So anyway, it, it's a little bit chronologically strange, but bear with me as I go through this, and hopefully it'll make some sense. And then I'll give you my take. The developers of Beeper Mini, the iMessage for Android app, are back with another attempt to keep Apple's blue bubbles on side, and this time they will ask their users to generate their iMessage registration data with the help of jailbroken iPhones, Mac Rumors has learned. Beeper Mini operates by identifying text message conversations from iMessage users and converting them to the recognizable blue bubbles associated with Apple's exclusive messaging service. This enables Android users to interact with iMessage features such as reactions, threads, high-quality media sharing, and group chats without the iPhone users noticing any difference. When Beeper Mini first launched, Android users were able to register their phone numbers with Beeper Mini, but Apple quickly shut down this avenue, and Beeper Mini now only works with an Apple ID email address. Android users have since required access to a Mac with Beeper Cloud installed to generate their iMessage registration data and get Beeper on Android working, but the service has seen poor reliability of late, with multiple interruptions reported. In its latest effort to keep the service afloat, Beeper will suggest that users get hold of an old iPhone to get iMessage working on their Android phone. Users will then be asked to install a free Beeper tool to generate an iMessage registration code, which will reinstate the ability to register phone numbers on the service. The catch is that the iPhone must be first jailbroken, and it must be kept plugged into power at home and connected to Wi-Fi for periodic registration re-requests. If iPhone users don't have access to an old iPhone for jailbreaking in order to complete the registration process, that's okay. Beeper will rent them one for a small monthly fee. The developers say the service will be available in the new year if there is enough interest. The plan was leaked ahead of time when a Beeper blog post was published late Wednesday, then swiftly removed, but not before a snapshot was generated by the Internet's archive Wayback Machine, as spotted by Mac Rumors contributor Aaron Paris. With the increasing amount of hoops Android users are being asked to jump through, Beeper is facing an ever-worsening existential crisis. When the requirement to have a Mac was added in the mix, it was not surprising that Android users began finding the app to be more of a hassle than a help. With this latest twist, literally requiring an iPhone or Mac to get the service working as it should, it's hard to see the approach gaining traction. And with Apple planning to adopt RCS next year to bring many iMessage features to conversations with Android users, community enthusiasm for the project has likely already peaked. Beeper Mini launched using a reverse-engineered version of iMessage, and the app was registering the phone numbers of Android users with fake iMessage credentials using Apple's own servers. Apple made it clear it views Beeper Mini as a security risk and that it has no intention of allowing the app to use iMessage in any capacity. So this is really kind of a crazy story. And the funny thing is, is all of this is around the green bubble versus blue bubble thing. You know, Android users talking with uh, iPhone users and having these, you know, <laughs> stigmatizing green bubbles instead of the lustrous 
blue bubbles familiar to people with iPhones talking to other people with Apple products. It's amazing the the links that <laughs> that these companies are going to, and the fact that there is such an audience of people wanting this to happen. And now Apple's a private company; they've got a private protocol for messaging between their Apple devices. It is very secure. It is end to end encrypted. But Apple has made it clear that they have no intentions of opening this protocol so that it can be used with other people. They know what a marketing bonanza this is. They know that certainly young kids in particular, you know, like you could be <laughs> you could be status shamed for for green bubble text messages. And I know I know some adults that even feel that way. So Apple knows what a marketing bonanza it is, and they want to keep it private. Now, SMS messages are horrible. They're, they're not secure. This new RCS messaging system will have a lot of advantages. It will take away a lot of the annoyances between communicating, particularly in a group text chat, uh, where some of the people in the group are Android and some of them are iPhone. You know, when, when someone gives a thumbs up to something or reacts to a message or replies to a message or has some of these message effects, you know, they don't translate into the very, very old SMS technology. And a lot of times it's, it's really clunky. By adopting RCS, a lot of that will go away. But the green versus blue bubble thing is still going to be there and Apple still wants it to be there. However, there's a lot of antitrust people looking at this, and especially Apple's response to this particular case where this company tried to find a workaround. This high school kid reverse engineered the iMessage protocol, and they were able to use that for a brief period of time to simulate uh, an, an iPhone so that they could get these blue bubbles, even from Android devices. And Apple quickly shut that down. It was a very much a game of whack-a-mole for about three to four weeks. And last I heard, actually, even after this article is written, I believe Beeper Mini has basically just given up. But it has attracted the attention of a lot of antitrust regulators. And it's quite possible that that uh, in the EU in particular, I would think, they, they may try to force Apple to open up the iMessage protocol to other non-Apple devices. We, we, we will see how that goes. Okay, so I saved arguably the best one for last, and this is another article from 404 Media, uh, and and this is <laughs> this just is crazy. So let me just read this article. A marketing team within media giant Cox Media Group, or CMG, claims it has the capability to listen to ambient conversations of consumers through embedded microphones in smartphones, smart TVs, and other devices to gather data and use it to target ads, according to a review of CMG marketing materials by 404 Media and details from a pitch given to an outside marketing professional. Called active listening, CMG claims the capability can identify potential customers, quote, based on casual conversations in real time, unquote. The news signals that what a huge swath of the public has believed for years, that smartphones are listening to people in order to deliver ads, may finally be a reality and in certain situations. Until now, there was no evidence that such a capability actually existed, but its myth permeated due to how sophisticated other ad tracking methods have become. It's not immediately clear if the capability CMG is advertising and claims works is being used on devices in the market today, but the company notes it is, quote, a marketing technique fit for the future available today, unquote. 404 Media also found a representative of the company on LinkedIn explicitly asking interested parties to contact them about the product, 
One marketing professional pitched by CMG on the tech said a CMG representative explained the prices of the service to them. And here's a quote from CMG's actual website. It says, quote, what would it mean for your business if you could target potential clients who are actively discussing their need for your services in their day-to-day conversations? No, it's not a Black Mirror episode. It's voice data, and CMG has the capabilities to use it to your business advantage, unquote. With active listening, CMG claims to be able to, quote, target your advertising to the exact people you are looking for, unquote, according to its website. The goal is to target potential clients or customers based on what they say, quote, in their day-to-day conversations, unquote. Specifically, those conversations could include, and these are potential quotes that they might be listening for, the car lease ends in a month. We need a plan. A minivan would be perfect for us. Do I see mold on the ceiling? We need to get serious about planning for retirement. The AC is on its last leg. We need a better mortgage rate. Clients can claim a territory where they want to use CMG services, which are available in a 10 or 20 mile radius, the website says. After setup, quote, active listening begins and is analyzed via AI to detect pertinent conversations via smartphones, smart TVs, and other devices, unquote. CMG also claims it installs a tracking pixel on its client's website to monitor the return on investment. With an audience created, CMG then delivers adverts to these people through streaming TV, streaming audio, display ads, YouTube, and Google and Bing search, the website says. Another quote from the website, quote, the result? unprecedented understanding of consumer behavior so we can deliver personalized ads that make your target audience think, wow, they must be a mind reader, unquote. Claims about this capability raise obvious and immediate legal concerns. Intercepting communications without proper consent can violate wiretapping laws. CMG's website addresses this with the section that starts with, quote, we know what you're thinking. Is this legal? Yes, it is totally legal for phones and devices to listen to you. That's because consumers usually give consent when accepting terms and conditions of software updates or app downloads, unquote. Beyond CMG's website, very little information is available about the capability, including how exactly the data is gathered, be that via a software development kit or an SDK bundled into apps or via collection at another point. For its part, Apple does alert iPhone users when an app is accessing the device's microphone with a small icon in the UI. And you may have noticed this if you've got a recent iPhone, at the very top of your screen, kind of where the Wi-Fi indicator and the battery indicator are, that if the microphone is currently in use, if something is recording you, uh, there's a little orange dot. And if you see a green dot, by the way, that means the camera is on. But I mean, (laughs) unless you're explicitly looking for that, you're never going to notice this. And so one final part of this article, and it's kind of funny, it says the marketing professional pitched by CMG told Foroform Media that after a call with the company, they disabled microphone access on much of their own technology. This is the quote from that person, quote, I immediately removed all my Amazon Echo devices and locked down microphone permissions on things like my phone as receiving confirmation that they are doing things like this have confirmed my worst fears and I, for one, will not take part in it, unquote. So... (laughs) I'm not sure what else I can really add to this. I mean, it's just, it's funny because for so many years, I, I can't tell you how many people have asked me this exact question. These are friends of mine or often people that I have in my class when we're talking about security and privacy. And they say, Carrie, I swear to God, uh, you know, I just mentioned this. I was just talking with a friend of mine about this. There's no way they could have known about this. And all of a sudden now I'm seeing these ads and I would just try to tell them, look, I, 
I know it probably seems that way, but it's probably just a coincidence. There are so many different ways, you know, that they can glean information about you, you know, perhaps right after that conversation, you know, your friend went to go search on something. It's possible that, you know, that by guilt, by association, maybe, you know, they knew that you were both in the same place at the same time. And if one of you was, you know, searching about this, maybe the other person might be interested in that too. You know, I don't know. There's, there's, the level and complexity of the of tracking that is already going on besides what we just talked about is so crazy that it, it would seem like, you know, these companies are mind readers and that they probably are somehow listening in on your conversations. Well, now we actually have a company claiming to do exactly that. Now, I don't know if this website is still there uh, that with all these claims that this article talked about, but it was preserved by the Internet Archive. So if you're really curious, you, uh, you can, you can find an older version of uh, Cox media groups website that still has all these claims and information on it. All right, everybody. I know we are already running long. We had a lot to catch up on, but I got one more thing I want to go through with you. And that is my tip of the week. And right around this time of year is when I give you some potential things that you might want to add to your new year's resolutions for 2024. Now, uh, since I'm running out of time, I'm going to just kind of go through this really quickly. I do, however, have a whole blog post on this. It's going to be the most recent one if you go to the website right now. And again, if you are a newsletter subscriber, this is already waiting for you in your inbox. But every year I change the format a little bit. And, and what I'm kind of settled on this year is I broke it into two main sections. And, and the reason I did this is because there's, there's some really top tips that, you know, things we all should be doing. And if you aren't doing these basic things yet, these really need to be the first ones to go on your new year's resolutions for this year. You, you really should be doing these things that at, a, at a bare minimum. And what are they? You're going to know what they are probably before I even tell you, uh, use a password manager, uh, use two factor authentication, use a privacy respecting browser and keep all your devices up to date. Now in just those four bullet points, uh, uh, in the article, there's a lot of links to other articles I have written and, and, and more information about how to do those things and why those things are important. But I want to focus on some of the next steps and, 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 you know, my book's got 200 tips in it. So I, I had to kind of whittle these down, but I, I picked some kind of new ones for this year and ones that I thought might be interesting, particular in 2024. And here, here are the ones that I suggested as possible next steps. Once you get those basics knocked out, some things you might want to try to get done, over the course of 2024, use email aliases. This is something I'm kind of recently hot on. I've been doing it myself for a while, but I haven't really pushed it that hard as something I think other people should do. I kind of looked at it as something as, you know, kind of next level that, that, that maybe I would do that others might not have, might not have the patience for, but it really is a powerful tool for, for protecting your privacy and preventing tracking and even for security. I just wrote a series of two articles on this in December. So there's a link to that from, from this blog article that I recommend you read. Uh, it's a really powerful tool. Uh, next up is de-googling your life. And this is something we should all look at. Google, as I've said today already, is an advertising company. 90 some percent of their profit is from ads. And they have a lot of services and products that they offer. And underlying all of those uh, is this need to gather as much information about you as possible. So it turns out, there are a lot of very useful privacy respecting alternatives to these Google services. And so uh, I challenge you to replace as many of those as possible. And I've got a long series of articles uh, that'll walk you through each of those. Next up, this is probably the year to try out pass keys. A lot of websites are now supporting it. The real thing that we're waiting on, and I, and I think even Bitwarden doesn't quite have this yet, uh, is the ability to back up and export your pass keys so that you could 
move to a different service if you want to. I don't like the fact that a lot of services now still don't have that capability, which means you're locked in to using that service once you start using the pass keys. Now you could of course create a new set of pass keys with any site. It's actually pretty easy to do. But what you really want for convenience and portability is you want the capability of once you've created these pass keys for websites and replaced your passwords, uh, if for some reason Bitwarden does something you don't like and you want to move to one password or whatever, pick any two companies, you should have the capability to take your pass keys from one system uh, and, and and export them and move them to another one, or at least some other easy migration path. And that is something that is still being worked out. Nevertheless, I think we're going to start seeing some of that this year. And this is a good time in 2024, I think, to just start trying out passkeys. Next up on the list is, is what I call planting your flag. And this is a, an article I wrote last year, I think, uh, that was really, really good. I think it was great to finally put this down on paper. And it's more important than you might think. And this is making sure that there's a lot of accounts out there that everybody has. And, you know, for instance, an IRS account, if you're in the United States, uh, you have one, whether you've claimed it or not. And there are maybe some medical and some other type of accounts that are kind of available to you by default in such a way that a bad guy could perhaps try to claim that out from under you if you haven't already claimed it yourself and set a strong password on it. So there's several situations that this article talks about where you probably should affirmatively claim some of these accounts for yourself and make sure you uh, secure access to these accounts. The fifth item on next steps is to have an emergency plan. When we set up all this, you know, really great passwords and two-factor authentication and all these methods of protecting our accounts, we can still forget the password. We could lose the passwords. We could lose access to our passwords. We could lose access to our two-factor authentication device. We could die or become incapacitated and our loved ones will not be able to access those things. So it's good that you plan ahead and make sure you have an emergency plan for accessing that information. And then finally, and this is kind of a perennial one, it, it could have maybe been on the basics part, and that is to learn how to communicate securely and privately. And that comes down to at least two different things. One is real-time communications, uh, doing that in an end-to-end -end encrypted way, or perhaps in uh, transferring sensitive files between two people. And of course, if you have encrypted email, you could do both with one tool. So if you have not played around with any of those things, like using Signal for your messaging, using uh, encrypted email service like ProtonMail for communications, try it out this year. Make a point to give those things a try this year and see what they like. Now, there's one actually one more section to this, and I'll just very briefly go over it. Uh, and that is going beyond these things. If you've gotten those things taken care of, here are some other things you should consider. First and foremost, help others. Security and privacy is not just a me thing, it's a we thing. The more people that do these things, the better off we all are. Uh, I'm sure that there are people that you know, friends and family, that would love to have your help in doing these things. Uh, my book is a great resource for that, but you can also find my coupons uh, for some great ideas there as well. So again, of course, links to all these things in the article. This year in particular is a big year for voting in the United States. It's a presidential election year. Uh, come this November, we are going to be choosing new representatives across the board, state, local, and federal. So this is the year to vote. I'm not telling you how to vote. I'm just telling you, make sure you vote. So if you're not registered, do so. Especially if you're young, get out there, get registered, plan on voting every time you can. If you are registered, 
verify your registration. Uh, there have been several states in the United States that have purged registration roles. They say for security, I don't care why they're, they're doing it. There's a possibility that if you were registered, that you are no longer registered. Or if you've moved, uh, if you've moved to a new district, you know, make sure your registration is up to date and do that before it's time to vote. Because in a lot of cases, that registration needs to be finalized well before you could actually vote. And there are links to some great tools to help you do this in the article. Uh, one more thing I would recommend that you do, especially, especially if you've never done it before, pick this year to reach out to your representatives on some issue that you care about. And the Electronic Frontier Foundation has got some great tips and tools on how to do this. There's a link in the article. Learn how to do this so that you can kind of get over that hump of, eh, I don't know how to do this. I've never done it before. I'll, I'll try it some other time. Get over that hump. Learn how to do these things. There are really nice online web tools that will help you do this. Every representative today has got a website where you can go and submit an issue. Uh, the only thing I would say uh, when you do this is... <laughs> Use an email alias for your contact, uh, or if possible, a secondary phone, because this will, unfortunately, absolutely get you on a lot of lists, some very, very annoying lists. But don't let that dissuade you. Take the opportunity this year to, to figure out how to contact your representative, find an issue that you care about, and lobby your representative to make some progress on that issue. Similarly, if, uh, if you want to do more than just sending an email yourself. Uh, there are a lot of great organizations out there that are doing work for you 24 uh, seven to help protect your rights. You know, the electronic frontier foundation, the ACLU, you know, Epic, there, there are so many, I've got an article that'll give you some links to the ones you might want to consider donating to this year. And if you're still looking for other ideas, obviously my book has got 200 tips in it. You can check that out. Um, you can look at the past year's list of new year's resolutions. I've got links to like five different previous years where I've done this. You can get some more ideas or you can look at my uh, data privacy checklist as well. So real quick, you might be interested in what my resolutions are for this year. Well, I can tell you one of them I finally checked off and this is, this is on me. This is something I should have done a long time ago. I finally moved to Bitwarden from LastPass. Yes, I will finally admit it. I will come clean. Uh, I, I'd stuck on LastPass for a long time because my family is on LastPass and we share a lot of things on LastPass. And I kept thinking, well, I need to bring us all together. And that is kind of what delayed things. No more. I, I moved to Bitwarden myself. I will keep LastPass long enough to continue sharing the things that we share, but I'm going to try to get my family along with me at some point. But I myself have moved on and I'm so happy to have finally checked off that big box. But my number one resolution for this year is to grow my audience, uh, both the podcast, the newsletter, and people who have read my book. And that's been kind of an ongoing resolution for me, to be honest. And I've made good progress. Uh, but this year, I want to focus on reaching other people's audiences. In the past, I've done a lot of grassroots kind of things uh, where I did raffles and contests and promotions that tried to get people to sign up for newsletters and things like that. And what I find a lot of times is that people will sign up long enough to, to try to win something, then they go away. So what I really want to do now is I want to try to find other audiences, like get on, be a guest on other podcasts, for example, uh, write guest blogs for somebody's website, get recommended by, I hate this word, but get recommended by influencers. In other words, other people who already have established audiences who could make a recommendation that they would listen to. I would love, for example, to get a contact with AARP or NPR. I think a particular uh, older adults tend to be more responsive to the kind of things I like to say. I'll be curious to see what the, uh, the statistics bear out in the listener survey, 
but I've certainly taught a lot of classes to that audience. Uh, and I think I'd, I'd love to find some outlets there, but I'm going to be open to a lot of things. I've already got some things in the works, but I want to kind of focus on bigger chunks this time. As the old saying goes, you know, why do you rob banks? Well, that's where the money is. So I'm going to try to find some existing large audiences and try to get in front of those audiences. So that we'll see how that goes. Also another resolution this year, and I've talked about it for a long time, but I want to try to find myself a part-time virtual assistant. I've got a lot of repetitive kind of tedious stuff that I do as part of the, all, all of this that I would love to get some help with. And maybe if I'm lucky, find somebody with some social media chops that might, that might be able to help me out. My social media skills are honestly pretty lacking. Also this year, 2024, we will have the 400th episode of the podcast. And you know what that means? That means Bruce Schneier needs to come back. Uh, he's done it for the for the 100th, the 200th, and the 300th episode. He promised he'd keep keep that trend going. So uh, we'll have to bring Bruce back and I'll have to do something fun. And it's going to be right around Halloween is when that episode should drop. So maybe I can come up with something uh, fun to do around that theme. And then one more thing I'll just throw out there personally. Uh, I've been wanting to get my ham radio license for a long time. Uh, and darn it, this is this is the year I'm going to make that happen. All right, that is that is way more than enough for this week. That is your news and your tip of the week. All right, everybody, I will keep this short. I know this has been very long. I apologize. We had a lot to catch up on. You could hear it in my voice. I, I've been talking a lot, and I guess my voice has gotten a little bit weak having not done this podcast for a month. But it's, but it's great to be back. I've got a lot, we've got a lot of great stuff coming up this year. I've got some wonderful interviews in the works again. Next week, we'll finally do our talk with Nick Weaver about, uh, <laughs> slaughter bots or killer drones and just, you know, AI agency in general, we're going to be talking about data privacy with the husband and wife team, Jody and Justin Daniels. Uh, I've got the computer security podcast with Patrick Wardle. That was a great one. I'm going to be interviewing Jen Caltrider from Mozilla's Privacy Not Included and Kate Black about medical privacy. All these are coming up and I've got even more great stuff in the works. So if you have not subscribed, go ahead and do that. That way you won't miss any of that. Again, please, a reminder, fill out the annual listener survey. I really want to hear from you. That is fdsd.me slash survey 2024. There is, of course, a link to that in the show notes. And I will be picking 10 respondents at random and you've got to really fill it out. None of this fill out a blank form. So that, that, that will be part of the criteria for that you need to meet for winning. But assuming you actually give it a good faith effort to fill it out, I will pick 10 respondents and you will receive a physical copy of my book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. You've got at least two more weeks to fill it out, maybe three. We'll see how the, how quickly the responses come in. I have gotten some already. I've read them all. Uh, there's some great information in there, but I really want more. So again, fdsd.me slash survey 2024. Now, one thing I will say real quick uh, for my patrons, I, I may, for this week's Merlin's Musings, try to go through and try to explain in more detail the technical aspects uh, of, of this Apple iPhone exploit, because it's just fascinating. Okay, but that's enough for this week. We've gone on way too long. Thank you for hanging in there, everybody. We had a lot to catch up on. And until next week, as always, stay safe out there and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.